did I not see this coming? And welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I need to make an apology to listeners because it's been over a month since I put up content. We did the Council of 50, and then we talked, uh, my friend Christine and I were going to come on and do an episode on tax evaders, and then a month passed by and nothing. Christina, what do you have to say for yourself? I mean, I made notes on the tax protester movement. Come to find... A lot of fundamentalists like them. Very few are fundamentalists. Yeah. So um, it's been a month. We've had an interesting month, both of us. And so I apologize for not getting the content out. But here we are making up for The Lost Promise, which also sounds like a desert title. The Lost Promise. That's a good desert book read. And we're making up for it with something better. Something better. Uh, What's better, Christina? What could be better than tax evasion? So do you remember that one time that you told me about the true principles of the restored gospel? I do. I've been trying to tell you about it for a long time. We're going to talk about them today. We are. That's kidding. We started. Here's here's the thing. I get on this Zoom call and I say, hey, Christina. And she goes, what if I just tell me, just tell them what you told me. Well, we got on and I was like, Lindsay, what if I were to tell you that as I was researching for this, I realized that Arvind Shree was a true a prophet of the Lord. And she said that she actually, like, you didn't seem shocked. No, no, no. Because here's the thing. Like, first of all, if Christina went whole hog and was, like, into the Zion Society or something, I would be, first, my first reaction would be, interesting choice. And second <laughs> would be, would be like, that makes sense. Christina's been trying to wrangle her way into the celestial kingdom for a while now. And so she's just jumped the shark and decided to go straight for the sisterhood of Zion. But I told her I would believe you more if you were just like, you know, you have some pretty, pretty compelling ideas that that's really compelling to me. Then I would be like, oh, 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 no. Oh, dear. We're not (laughs) hiding our biases tonight. We we are talking about something actually pretty tough and uh, pretty dark. So if you have children in the room, you're going to want to remove them. To a safe, to a. I was like, removal's like not the word for this episode, but here we are. Uh, that's the kind of night it's going to be. Uh, we're talking about when fundamentalism goes wrong, really, really wrong. And I'm a bit of a moral relativist. I'm like, well, you know, in some cultures, some things are more okay than other things. But in this case, I mean, we're talking about actual wrong, like child abuse and kidnapping and sexual abuse and all kinds of coercion and, and things that are like fundamentally wrong. Yes. And for the record, don't have a testimony in Arvin. Just well, I mean, but if you did, I would say interesting choice. And then I would be like, Christina, this is not the way to social kingdom. There are easier paths. Oh, lower paths, would you say? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> lo- lower is better in this case. Okay, fair. So here's the thing. We're a little punchy about this just because it is so dark, right? Yeah. So these kind of, in general, like researching one of these cases is obviously really challenging. Researching four, it's hard. It's real. And in for me, at least, laughing is, is a coping mechanism. Like I 100% use that. 
Um, but this is hard. It's in my mind, like this is when Mormonism doesn't work. Yeah. And, and actually I want to contextualize it in an interesting way. So Christina is also the editor at the Utah B, which is something that I will write articles for sometimes. And Christina, why don't you talk about the series that has been running this month? Yeah. So this month uh, we've had Connell Donovan come on and he's written a five part series on child brides in the Utah territory, mainly focusing on 1856 and 1857. And it's brought up a lot of emotions in people um, and a lot of hurt and a lot of anger. And at the same time, it's caused a lot of people to think through their own Mormon experiences and are there similarities and are there differences and is there historical continuity with this practice? It's been rough. And not only has it been rough, you know, Connell's been on the program. And if you haven't given to his GoFundMe for his car, then you should do that. But yeah, Connell um, has done some really heavy research for this. As I've been reading his series, it's made me think about how there's there's this thing with religion and Mormonism. I'm going to speak to Mormonism specifically, where people have desires that are aberration, right? That are not normal, that are criminal, like pedophilia and then they use their their religious teachings to justify the practice. And we've seen that, you know, in folks like I I believe that Warren Jeffs's motivations were something similar. He had desires that he didn't understand and and the tools that he had at the time were his scriptures and so he made those to reconcile in his mind so he didn't have to live with this dissonance of, you know, religious belief saying one thing and these kind of like compulsions that he had. It makes me think these pedophilia has always existed. And here's what it looked like in Frontier Utah when Connell writes about it. And here's what it looked like in Mormonism. I mean, polygamy opened up an avenue for old men to marry children. And that's what Connell's series is about. Well, now, as laws and rules and social mores have shifted and adjusted, how are these Mormon men, these these modern day Mormon pedophiles, using societal expectations, Mormon doctrine, and you know these compulsions? How they intersect, and I think that that's what we get, right? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? That felt like a really wordy way to say that they're related in my mind. And the other thing is that when these are obviously sensitive topics, and talking about dangerous and violent and harmful individuals within the context of a broader religion is uncomfortable for people who are part of that same religious tradition. Even if it is a quote schismatic group, it can be uncomfortable. But I think it's important to recognize what traditions, what can happen to different religious traditions. I know in my own, and that's even in my own tradition, I'm Catholic, spoiler, I talk about it a lot. And we have our own problems with abuse in Catholicism right now. And we're being forced to confront the reality that it's institutional, it's systemic, and that the religion at times breeds abuse. And to pretend that's not the case does more damage than good. Well, and not just that, I feel like something that I've noticed that is an interesting, if you want to have an interesting test of character, we'll say, ask a Mormon, tell them about an abusive sect in Mormonism. Say, I I, I will tell like, I'll be talking to LDS people and I'll say, here's this story about Warren Jeffs. And if they say, oh, that's horrible, that's awful, that's one way to respond. But too often I hear, rather than 
criticizing the abuse first, they say, oh, they're not part of us. They're not, they're not Mormon though. They're not Mormon. And I think what a telling response that that is your first reaction. That says way more about Mm -hmm. you and where your values lie than someone who would say, oh gosh, that's so bad. But Mormons are so obsessed with boundary maintenance. And, and I, and I will throw this out Mormon scholars as well. I, Christina, you, you'll know this well. Uh, there are a lot of LDS scholars who are very uncomfortable, who do not like the parallels drawn between the LDS church and fundamentalism. They want to separate them. They want to say that they're a separate Mormonism. But you and I, who have spent massive amounts of time in these communities, know the story is a little bit more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're so very similar in mindset and practice and theology and belief in lifestyle and culture that in some cases there are more similarities than there are differences. Yeah. And I, I think being able to sit in that discomfort that that causes and question your reactions to it, that is how growth happens. Not only that, but... Uh, there's something in, I only speak from a Mormon tradition. In Mormonism, everyone is uncomfortable with abuse. I think society at large is uncomfortable sure. with abuse. But Mormon specifically, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want it to relate to us. And and I don't care if you're a liberal Mormon, if you're a conservative Mormon, if you're a fundamentalist Mormon, if you're ex-Mormon. All Mormons are don't want to talk about this in in the context that it's actually happening. And so people are more concerned with distancing themselves from it and their loyalties and their faith from it than they are the actual abuse. And so here's the thing. When we talk about folks like Brian David Mitchell, we're not condemning the whole LDS church, but we Mm -hmm. are telling a story of how Mormonism intersected with this man's mental illness, how it intersected with his belief system, his systems of abuse and power, his pedophilia. I mean, all of Mm -hmm. those kind of things. And Mormons, we have to contend with this. And we're not saying that Mormonism causes this or whatever. We're saying these things are being played out in a Mormon way. And here are the tools that Mormonism gives people to maybe amplify some of these behaviors and enable some of these behaviors and in some other ways curb the behaviors, right? But Mormons are not practiced at doing this and Mormon scholars as well. I mean, again, we've criticized them on, on this podcast for being too defensive. It's still like a Mormon gut reaction to loyalty. And I think that that's not the best way to study our faith. If you're a scholar, I'm not a scholar, so maybe I'm wrong. But I hate that. Continue. <laughs> but I just can't with the with that. I know. I know. Uh, well, me not being a scholar or my opinion. <laughs> uh, your opinion of your lack of, quote, scholarship. Yeah. So, but. You you know I'm right. Like uh, it, this is something that scholars are uncomfortable with, and they will try to defend. And I don't yeah. think you're wrong at all. But I I hope that all of these stories that we're going to tell are different. Obviously, they manifest differently. The intermingling of different circumstances that created this are different. But the one thing that's in common with all of these people is that they all were LDS at one point, and that needs to be talked about. Those are That is a part of this story that is usually forgotten. And that's an uncomfortable truth. It's an uncomfortable truth to realize that there are parts of our society that we participate in that can enable and contribute to abuse. But that's the reality of it. And I really think that if we are more, if we really are more invested in rooting out abuse, then we will be able to start seeing it that way, that we need to maybe look at some of the things that are enabling it 
at the very least and amplifying it maybe at the worst or informing it and change that because we've talked about this on the podcast before. There have, how many people have I talked to that have been molested using the doctrine of plural marriage, you know, stepfathers mm-hmm. and bishops and mission presidents and things like that use this doctrine to justify their abuse. That's something that needs to be looked at. And I actually think that if we were to study Mormon sexuality more, especially the psyche in men and women, that we would see how the doctrine of polygamy really informs our sexual practices, our sexual identity, our social identity, and, and all of those kinds of things. But I think Mormons and Mormon scholarship specifically is still too afraid to go in those areas. That's my rant. In the name of cheese and rice. Okay, so let's, let's go on. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's talk about, tell us the groups we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, so tonight we're going to be talking about some that people are going to be really familiar with. Um, the Lafferty Brothers, which became really popular from Under the Banner of Heaven, which so many people have read. Arvind Shreve and the Zion Society, Brian David Mitchell, most people know him as the man that kidnapped Elizabeth Smart, and most recently, uh, the Knights of the Crystal Blade. And again, I I can already see the internet comments. There were only two participants in that group. Right. The Lafferty's weren't big either, but it's something that we contend with because these are people who use these principles, if you will, these uh, religious ideas and tenets to justify their abuse. And that's Mm -hmm. what we're talking about tonight. And so can we just start with like the Brian David Mitchell thing? Because I have a Brian David Mitchell story. Do you want to hear my Brian David Mitchell story? Always. I actually have two Brian David Mitchell stories. So that's growing up in Utah. (laughs) I know. And it feels like this isn't me like name dropping here. I just these. (laughs) Yeah, like I know. Lindsay and her stories of meeting a prophet. Here we go. No, I've got plenty of those. But this was this is something that really sticks with me because I remember these moments and they were pretty unsettling. So one was I was a teenager and I was at the homeless shelter downtown and me and one of my friends wanted to volunteer. So we volunteered a few times at the soup kitchen and one time this guy came in and he slipped me a note. And the note was like this little handwritten thing and it had some scriptures quoted and it was about the stem of Jesse and and I and I knew that it was Doctrine and Covenants and I recognized some Book of Mormon scriptures, but I, I was confused. And I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, oh, that poor that poor man isn't well. Well, I, the next time I came back, he slipped me another note and it was something like something about plural marriage and asked me to be his wife. And I remember I gave it to the parents of the kid of the of my friend. And I said, look what this guy just gave me. And they're like, oh, that's so creepy. And, th- and that was it. And I didn't see that man again until uh, I worked at ZCMI. And I was at ZCMI and it was the last year of ZCMI, which was the church's own, you know, store, which I have, I actually have so many fond memories of, of that place. And they were transitioning to a new store. It was called Myron Frank at the time. And we were downtown in the old mall. And Brian David Mitchell would come in with his wife, Wanda Barzi, and they would, you know, they were very noticeable because they were wearing these outfits. Well, a few years earlier when I had met him, he wasn't in my memory, at least dressed that strangely. I think he was just dressed normal. In fact, I don't even think he looked homeless. Anyway, so he would come in from time to time to the store and we kind of had to joke that this weird 
you know, profit guy had a crush on the girl in the shoe department <laughs> downstairs. He mm. was like always hitting on her. And then it was, you know, I don't know, a month a, or a couple years later. I don't even remember how long, but I remember driving downtown and seeing him with two women and thinking, oh, he got a, an extra wife, you know, and didn't think anything of it. And it was a little bit Elizabeth Smart. And a lot of us that lived in Salt Lake, we saw her. Brian and Wanda used to come into the dressing rooms at CCMI <laughs> and who knows what was going on in there. And we'd have to go tell yeah. security or whatever. So we just got you like, we just didn't think about it. Just saw it. And it's so eerie and haunting. And, you know, as anyone that was in Salt Lake at the time, we were all caught up in this kidnapping when, you know, when he kidnaps Elizabeth Smart. So I'm going to have you talk more about the details, but that's kind of like my weird memory of it. My weird interaction with him. That's rough. Also very Utah. Yeah. I mean, I listen, these stories are not that rare. You can talk to anyone that worked downtown nope. at the time. We all we all saw him. We all interacted mm-hmm. with him. And that's, I mean, obviously not to that kind of extent of interacting with a criminal man, fundamentalist man. But people interact with fundamentalists all the time in Utah. If you live in Utah, you've hung out with one. So, yeah, it, it, that's a very Utah story. Yeah, you know, I talked to people that had seen him at a party or sorry, had hung, you know, hung out with him or something. And it's just so it's so interesting because to the world and to so many, it's become this sort of very famous story. And it is it's this this awful scandalous story, but it it is very Utah, like you said. I mean, he's not the first prophet I've met roaming on the streets for certain. And he's not the first man to give me scriptures on the street. And he's not the first one to have plural wives that he takes out and about. And so it's very Utah. Yeah. So walk us into the story of Brian David Mitchell. Yeah. So Brian David Mitchell, born October 18th, 1953 in Salt Lake City. There were six kids in his family and they were LDS. There was just an LDS family. But there was some interesting things going on with his dad. And I really think that's worth noting. His dad was a social worker. But there's accounts of when he was young that to teach Brian David Mitchell about sex, his dad would show him really explicit photos from medical journals and that he would do things like drop off Brian David Mitchell in random places in the middle of the night and on their way home from school. And so there was abuse going on. But this dad is particularly interesting because the dad believed he was a prophet in his own right. And that's not talked about very often. Um, Cheryl Mitchell uh, wrote a 900-page manuscript manifesto called Spokesman for the Infant God or Goddess. And in it, he claimed that he is the Christ. He received revelations. He received visions. And the manuscript, I don't know many people who've read it, but Sunstone actually ran an article about Brian David, about becoming Brian David Mitchell yeah, and how we'll he became this. We, we yeah. got that and we've got uh, an audio session too that we can link to. Oh, awesome. Uh, and it'll, it talked about children's erotic practices. He talked about women being manipulative. It had very graphic, abusive depictions of sexuality. It wasn't great. And so Brian David Mitchell grew up in this context where his dad could become a prophet. His dad was abusive. And his dad was using his religion to be sexually abusive to people. And so I think that's a crucial component to the story that we often forget is that Brian David Mitchell was not the only self-proclaimed prophet in his family. 
Yeah, and and I would say it, this is interesting because in in some Mormon sects that there's this idea of the line of succession being you know where fathers are passing it down through their through their sons or something. Yeah. But that's I would say it's pretty rare. I mean, people think the FLDS yeah. because Rulin and Warren Jeffs, but that's that was abnormal. So uh, I can think of like one other. Yeah, and so, but but my understanding is this father and son, their doctrines and theology were different. They were claiming different things. Yeah, they were. I did, so in terms of Cheryl, he believed that he was the Christ, and that God told him that. So Brendan Mitchell never claimed that. Um, he never, I, to my knowledge, he never made explicit reference to his dad being the Christ. Um, I just think that there's an interesting connection that when we think of Brian David Mitchell kind of emerging in a vacuum, that's not the case. From the time he was a child, he was raised in a religious environment where men become prophets overnight. And not only are they becoming prophets, but they're giving revelations of sexual natures and things that will affect Brian David later in life. And um, one of those things is his dad had a theology about rape. The biggest example in his revelations, his dad talks about that there's, there can be no such thing as an illegal rape in a marriage. And so that'll play out later in Brian David Mitchell's life. So not, not super surprisingly, Brian David Mitchell has criminal activity really early on exposing himself to children. But, but you, you said something interesting that I want to fall back on and it goes to our earlier discussion, which is you said, He came from a family where you could be prophet overnight. And this is how I look at Mormon theology. It's Mm -hmm. on a spectrum. I really, I really see it this way. And the doctrines hold and there are different interpretations. But usually, I mean, there are very few people, I would, I'd say maybe like the TLC and a few other groups where, and maybe, you know, the, the Kingston's where some of their theologies aren't on the spectrum. But for the most part, uh, there's Mormon doctrines on it and they can slide up so this idea of being a prophet overnight like that that wasn't pulled out of nowhere that is very much in line and informed with mormonism and and whether it's overnight whether it's over a a lifetime Mm -hmm. or whatever it's on the spectrum but i would say that's a mormon idea Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that I've heard so many times from both LDS Mormons and fundamentalists is that it's the reality that any man in the LDS church who's ordained the Melchizedek priesthood holds the same priesthood as the prophet. Their stewardship is different. Their keys are different, but it's the same priesthood. And so you can see where they would be going with that. Yeah. So I didn't mean to interrupt. I just want to point that out. So go on. Uh, so early on, he's involved, like at 16, he exposes, exposes himself to a child, ends up in juvenile hall, doing criminal activity from a very early age. Um, so then at 19, he gets married, a very Mormon story. Um, and he has two children. He gets married at 19. His wife is three years younger than him. So she's 16 when they get married. Uh, and they have two children. Uh, they later divorce. She's awarded custody and he moves to New Hampshire. And my favorite part of the Brian David Mitchell story is he moves to New Hampshire. And the first thing he does is he joins the Hare Krishna movement. I, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. He joined, uh, he joined, he didn't just join the Hare Krishna movement, but he actually joined a Hare Krishna commune. So he was participating in communal living pretty early, which is interesting because that becomes a pretty big part of his theology later in life. And about this time, he so starts he, experimenting with drugs and, well, he wasn't experimenting. Yes. He didn't try it for the first time, but he really gets heavily into drugs and alcohol. Yes, absolutely. Which, you know, this is 
a time when people are doing that. And I don't want to make excuses for that. But that was like communal living. That was, you know, it's a stereotype of communal of communal living culture of the night of that time period. But it's also a reality of it. But he's inspired to become sober because of his missionary brother <laughs> who comes home. Uh, and he then gets married again and has two, uh, two additional children. Now, this one is where things start to take a turn uh, because he's married to a second wife and they later divorce. And she alleges that Brian David Mitchell sexually abused their three-year-old son. And um, one of that wife's daughters also claimed that she was abused by Brian David Mitchell for four years. So early on, allegations of abuse. She was awarded custody, I believe, um, of the children. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, so, so kind of moving quicker to get to the big parts of the story. On the day that his divorce was finalized, he married Wanda Barzi. Uh, and she was 40, 40 years old at the time, divorced and had six kids. And you can read a lot about her, especially now in light of the fact that she just got out of prison, that her ki- she didn't have a place to go when she got out of prison. And people wondered where she was going to stay. She ended up in a motel for a while. And her children were doing interviews trying to explain why they weren't taking her in. And there's horrific stories of her eating her kids pet rabbit and laughing about it to the kids her kids call her a monster claims of sexual abuse so she in her own right has a rough world that she's living in and she's also abusive um so they together decide to get involved in the LDS church after their marriage well and yeah my understanding was that Brian David Mitchell's brother in 1980 got back from his mission and talked to him and sort of wanted to straighten him out. So Brian is getting involved in that. And that's like the year before he marries Debbie. Yes. So it's like the church is going to, you know, now they're going to fulfill this Mormon dream. So it's while he's attending the LDS church that he begins to experience prophetic visions and receive revelations. And And it's at this time. Yeah, he was like super interested in Satan too. And that really starts to concern his wife. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, so more. So that I'm already. So he marries Wanda Barzi. They continue to go to the LDS church. He continues to receive revelations, continues to experience prophetic visions. And then he's told to change his name, which is the major turning point to fundamentalism. Wait. So hold on. Let's back up. So let's finish the marriage to Debbie. Did you do that? Did I skip? Did I miss that? Yeah, and how on the day of their divorce, he married Wanda, who had a criminal oh. past of eating rabbits. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I was getting the wife's confused. You're right. Go on. Oh, yeah. So she's eating rabbits. Um, It's tragic. Like, when you read the story about that, like, that really got to me for some reason, like, that particularly. I mean, anyway. Can, wait, wait, wait. Can we slow down? And are we saying, like, she's, like, eating, like, a dead rabbit? Or she's, like, eating a live rabbit? Or she's, like, he, cooking rabbit and, like, no. hey, I like to he eat cooked. rabbit? No, you know? she... She served her family chicken, and then her kids the next day asked where their pet rabbit was, and she laughed at them. Oh, okay. Well, okay. So, so, so- no, the story's rough. She, in her own right, she was very abusive mentally and emotionally to her children. And also her children have stories of her mother, of their mother being sexually and physically abusive. So on her own, not great. No, I mean, that's not great. No. Marries Brian David Mitchell. So, uh, they get married. They continue to go to the LDS church. They get continue, continually involved. But he became convinced that he was a prophet. And he ends up changing his name 
to Emmanuel David Isaiah, which this is the big turning point in fundamentalism. Wanda Barzi also changes her name to Hefzibah. Is that how you say her name? Yeah, but really quick, like, but before like this happens, they appear to be this like, you know, Mormon couple. Mormon couple. They're kind of strange, but some people saw them as just like normal and hardworking. I guess uh, Brian David Mitchell was a die cutter in Salt Lake and they knew that he like pe- like his close friends and family knew he had a, an anger problem and they knew he was pretty angry at Wanda. But um, again, you know, that's not something, especially at this time period that a lot of people talked about. Right. And so what he would do is he would become more and more obsessed with Satan. And when people would ask him about that, he would say, oh, this is me trying to fight my enemy. This is me trying to conquer Satan. You you know, I have this anger problem. And oh, <laughs> so there's also a story that he would go to the temple. And in some of the old temples, they used to do live action re- recreations. And he would portray Satan, the character of Satan. And he became too extreme and too aggressive that they actually had to tell him to tone it down because he was just like way too into the part. So anyway, I just, I thought. Didn't he, didn't he also like stand outside of the Salt Lake temple and do strange things? Yeah. So he began to preach and proselytize. So I guess he, one night he woke and told one of Wanda's kids that he had just spoken to a bunch of angels and as soon as that happened, he he starts like telling people and proselytizing and having these visions. The reason I bring that up is because just last month, a man dressed in all white and was standing in front of the Salt Lake Temple and people on Reddit and Twitter were wondering what is happening. And in my mind, the first thing that I jumped to is Brian David Mitchell, because this is not the first time someone has dressed in white and done things in front of the Salt Lake Temple. I wish I could say that any of that surprises me, but it does not. Right. Um, so she, they both changed their name, which again is a fairly common practice in Mormonism to receive a new name from God. In this case, he self-proclaims it. Um, and that's the turning point of him really getting interested in fundamental, in, you know, what we would call fundamentalism and becoming a prophet. He started to grow out his hair, grow out his beard, dress in robes, looked a lot like Jesus, or I guess what my imagining of Jesus was. Um, And of course, as one does, he compiled a book of revelations, the book of Emmanuel, David Isaiah, or the manifesto of Brian David Mitchell. And I've never actually read the whole thing. Have you? No, I have absolutely not spent my time on that. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Um, And in it, he, of course, referenced himself as, as the one mighty and strong. And the actual quote is, quote, one who is mighty and strong, I have ordained in the in the steam of him who was stream of him who was ordained of God. Uh, and as part of the prophecy to have this fulfilled, he was told that he needed seven times seven virgin brides plus one. First of all, it's a gross way to do math. And second of all, uh, gross. I w- I'm just going to say it. Biblically, I don't know where the plus one comes from. Like seven times seven, like we hear, like forgive seventy times seven. And the plus one, one for the road. I don't know. Like it's like, yeah, like that's fifty. I mean, I guess that's fifty wives, fifty brides, seven times. Yeah, that would be fifty. But I don't know if fifty is an influential number in Mormonism. So that's what I was getting with that. So that's fifty brides. He's instructed to take fifty virgin brides. 
Uh, in 2002, the LDS Church receives a copy of this, and we can all guess what happens when the LDS Church receives the manifesto of Brian David Mitchell. Not a good look. He's excommunicated. Um, so Brian David Mitchell, which is going to be a trend throughout this episode, is excommunicated by the LDS Church. Um, and there's another quote from it that kind of demonstrates that he's emboldened by his visions of God. And it says, speaking on behalf of God, I have raised up my servant, Emmanuel David Isaiah, ever my righteous right hand to be a light and a covenant to my people, to all those who will repent and come unto me. For in my servant, Emmanuel is the fullness of my gospel. Here's, here's the thing though. I don't, I don't want to sound lazy, like a lazy researcher, but after a while, all these manifestos start to sound the same. Like they just like, You've read one sure. manifesto, you've read them all. They just, it's, you know, yada, yada, I'm the one mighty and strong, yada, yada, I'm going to take on all these wives. Uh, God is telling me to do this. I'm going to do it. Here's a few scriptures. By the way, Jesus is cool with it. The end. You know, it's always the same. I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I don't think you're wrong. You know, all of them are the one mighty and strong. That's the bummer about the one oh, mighty and strong. Scripture, man. I just um, wish it wasn't. Spoilers. There. The one mighty and strong is Joseph Smith standing on the other side of the veil in this dispensation. Um, anyway. So. I really must, thought it was going to be David Archuleta, but that's okay. That's uh, a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> he might still be. So most people are familiar with how um, the story ends up unfolding. Shortly after he's excommunicated, he broke into the home of Edward and Lois Smart in Salt Lake City. Um, they had six children, and he abducted 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart. Um, and she was held hostage, um, really severe abuse. As you mentioned, a lot of people saw them in Salt Lake City. And the wild thing is no one did anything. And I mean, you know, how, how would you know? How could you? A lot of people have... Um, tried to pathologize the behavior saying that she might have had Stockholm syndrome. I don't know. Abuse is a hard thing. Yeah. And um, I've been like, you know, we did an episode early on in this series where like we talked about this briefly and it just made me so uncomfortable to talk about it. Cause I don't, I, I know like Elizabeth is a real person. She's in Utah. Yep. She is doing work. I don't feel like I like talking about it because it's like sensationalizing her trauma a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So should we just say like if people that's all I have for it? her is that, you know, she's a speaker in Utah. She does firesides still. You can go see her speak. Um, and she ha she was an incredibly strong advocate um, when Wanda Barzi's parole came up and she was released. Um, I couldn't have, you know, stood in front of cameras and talked about how I felt about that moment. I don't know how she did it. Um, but most people are familiar with that's how the story ends. Um, now, I was actually talking to my mom before this because um, my parents, you know, have CNN on all the time <laughs> and they watch the news all day long and Food Network. But I asked my mom about the story and what she remembers about it. And she remembers the picture of, you know, Elizabeth Smart at the party um, with her face covered. And she remembers the pictures of her with her harp. But my mom also remembers knowing that Brian David Mitchell was Mormon. And so I don't, I mean, my mom obviously does, didn't know that he was like a fundamentalist, but from talking to people just casually, not a, a lot of people realize that this was a polygamy situation. 
No, and and let's talk about that for just a minute because um everyone knows him for Elizabeth Smart, which you know rightly so it was a, it was an international story. I mean, people were following this, and if you know it's of course it's horrible, but even you know scholar Daniel Peterson says that Mitchell's revelations he found logical. They were logical. Um, viewing of Mormon theology or traditions of breakaway Mormon groups. And so David or Brian David Mitchell would try to recruit wives. That's what he was doing a lot. And so there was a woman from the Kingston clan that he tried to bring on as a polygamous wife, uh, Julia Atkinson. And I think she was 21 at the time. And he tried to, you know, do this to a few women. And then when it didn't work, he started to forcibly take girls or attempt Mm -hmm. to take them. And he made several attempts and, you know, eventually succeeds with uh, Elizabeth Smart at Knife Point. And again, like I said, we're not going to go over the details of that because if you, they're out there, you know, it's not worth saying. Mm -hmm. But to me, um, what's interesting is how he used Mormon doctrine to control people in his life. You know, not just the women that he was associated with, but you know, people he would talk to on the street. He was still a street preacher. He was still um, trying to convince people of, you know, the rightness of his claim. Mm-hmm. And you know, fortunately, um, Brian David Mitchell didn't amass followers, a large following who emulated his work. But understanding that his claims come from Mormonism are important for thinking through how this happens and ultimately how you can nip it in the bud for lack of a better word. Um, Cause these groups start somewhere. I think more than Mormon doctrine, like Brian David Mitchell story speaks to sort of this interesting idea of Mormon patriarchy and the role of the father and the son. And the fact that like when somebody in your ward goes off the rails with their doctrine, like nobody knows what to do about it. The only real tool they have is excommunication and great, you know, that keeps the guy quiet at church, but what does that do for the family? Like there, you know, it's this idea. And I think this is where it gets really murky with like religious freedom laws. Like I've talked to some of these guys where it's just like one guy in his own church and like they are entirely like thoroughly convinced. It's not... You know, I've talked to people that I've questioned their motives or whatever, but most of the people I've talked to, they are believers of their own power and their own authority. And so, like, what does that mean for religious beliefs? What is it like religious principles, religious freedom? It's it gets it gets kind of interesting. So I think to me, this is a story more about the failure of the Mormon system than anything else. And I think what you said about belief is really important because my interest in Mormonism generally, not particularly fundamentalism or Brian David Mitchell, but Mormonism generally is the nature of belief in Mormonism that I think is really unique. Um, you know, my faith has always existed in a strong relationship to doubt. Um, I don't know what it feels like to really believe something as ardently as I see people believe in Mormonism. And so I think that's a component that we miss a lot when we brush things off as, oh, he's crazy or he's you know, gone off the rails is that we forget that this is a religious system where people believe. And to neglect that is a huge gap in the conversation that Brian David Mitchell, yes, he was violent. Yes, he was dangerous. Yes, he was a criminal. But he also believed. 
that this was true. You know, and we can we can claim that as like, mental I illness. Can, but I can hear I can hear the defense because I've heard it before. Defensive Mormons or people that want to play to a Mormon audience will say, No, 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 no. These guys knew what they're doing. They they know what they're doing. And like it's this idea of intent versus impact. Like, even if that were true, the impact is still the same. They're using the Mormon tools to mm-hmm. to do this. And there's not a lot anyone can do about it. Because it's one thing, like, you can, you can prosecute fraud, right? If someone's, like, actively trying to trick you. But it gets a little trickier to tell if someone actually believes in this sort of religious belief or self-confirmation that they're a prophet and you know you can't throw a person in jail because they think they're jesus no and i and when i say that they really believe that's in no way an excuse for bad behavior um and it's not a justification for bad behavior either um there's a really great book can i plug a book real quick that's not mine obviously because i don't have one (laughs) yes Um, there's a really great book that came out fairly recently. It's called History and Presence. Um, and it's the history of transubstantiation or the true presence in Catholicism and how it's a methodological book to take seriously the claims of religious people because religious studies doesn't do that anymore for the most part. Um, and the last chapter is about evil. And he talks about the true presence of the Eucharist in terms of priests that molest children and how to, cl- to say, to acknowledge that these people have an ardent belief is not to dismiss or justify claims, but it's to also take what people say seriously, which we have failed to do for a long time. No, no, no. I'm going to, I'm going to push back on you because I will say we have failed to do it when it comes to Mormon fundamentalism, but Mormon oh, sure. scholars will absolutely validate the religious belief and experience of LDS people. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not. Yeah, right. no, or, you're not wrong. Or, you know, you're the not wrong. LDS or something like that. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works because that faith feels the same. Mm-hmm. It feels the same. Like, I, I've i spent so many time, so much time in this community. Like, I think, I, I think this about ex-Mormons. I think that, like, we should be looking at ex-Mormons that leave the church. Like, we look at people who leave the FLDS. There are some obvious differences, but there are some similarities that are really worth paying attention to in in the behavior, in the loss, in the identity crisis, all of these things. Like I said, it's on the spectrum. And I just think it's such a missed opportunity for wealth and knowledge and insight to be ignoring the experiences of these other communities just because they make us uncomfortable. I agree. I agree. And that but says I more mean, about our I, fear and our intent. I don't know. This is becoming my rant. Get no, yourself I, together. I mean, my big rant, I like spent six years working on this rant, is that you have to take the religious claims of people seriously. And when you're saying you're going to take the religious claims of some seriously, you have to take the religious claims of all people seriously. Because a good historical work has to do that. It has to grapple with the fact that the people that we're writing about are real people who have real beliefs and things. And for them, their beliefs are real. And huh. you can't not. And I'll just give you an example. One of, one of these examples is the fact that, for example, you will talk, you'll have historians, faithful LDS historians who are considered these paragons in Mormon history who will talk about the faith of, of polygamous women in the 19th century. And they'll be like, oh, it's this beautiful thing. And they like really believed it and blah, 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 blah. Does that idea extend to people today? And from an LDS historian. And no, it does not. LDS historians do not take it seriously because it makes them uncomfortable. 
And to me that there's not enough disconnect. And you'll talk to, you know, non-Mormon scholars that study Mormonism and they'll say that this is a huge problem. Even Will Bagley, who I believe grew up Mormon, he condemns scholars. <laughs> Some Mormon scholars are so sloppy that they still say things like Joseph, right? When they're talking about the history. But like you never read about Abraham Lincoln and they call him Abraham, <laughs> right? They're always like Lincoln did Look at his book. Or President Lincoln. Yeah, but you're never like, and and then when young Abraham was five years old, like, that's just not how you read I actually, as an aside, I just got revisions back for a chapter, and I, 90% of the time, said Prophet Joseph. Who am I? Good gracious. Look at you. We're bringing you over to our side. I mean, like, the Prophet Joseph knelt in the grove. Or like... Like, go back to the beginning of this podcast where I'm always like, and Johnston's army, which like, that is not, that's the, that's the thing that Mormons call the army. That's not what they were. Like, that's just how the, that's, that reflects a Mormon, the Mormon identity of how we saw ourselves as victims of the federal government. And so, so it was Johnston's army rather than like all of these expeditions that are coming across the plains, partially because the Mormons were, you know having a few massacres and stuff and maybe starting their own religious theocracy. So it's, I don't know. That's our rant. Look, look, how, look how far you've come in one year of polygamy. <laughs> <laughs> one very, very, very long year. It's, it's really, still going. It's a metaphor for my life on too many levels. Um, okay, who are we talking about now, Lindsay? Okay, so we're going to end this episode on Brian David Mitchell, and then we're going to break it into, because we're at an hour. No, I know, but I thought we were doing two profits and then two profits. Uh, not tonight. Cause this is your show. This is your show. We've already done two, we've already done an hours on our rants. So this is like a profit in a rant. So we'll see how far we get. We'll get to the next three in a, with no ranting. Okay, so this episode, we're going to end with Brian David Mitchell. Uh, next episode, who are we talking about next episode? Are we doing all three? Roll the, Laf- roll the creepy dice. What do we got? Lafferty's, Arvin Shreve, and the newest, and Knights of the Crystal Blade. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have an adjective to go with that. Yeah, that's probably wise. Okay, so uh, we'll see you next time, and thanks for listening. Bye! The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.